We're reading today out of the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 34. I invite you to read along, follow along as I read it out loud. 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, beginning in verse 8, and this is speaking of King Josiah. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jehoth and Obadiah the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today on seeking God, on having him be at the center of our lives personally, and then on having him be at the center of our church together. And we're focusing on seeking God by looking at the life of King Josiah. Josiah was one of Israel's great reformers, and when you look at his life, you learn at least two things. He shows you what it is that marks someone who is seeking God. He shows us what it looks like, what the evidence is that you're pursuing God. Shows us the marks of someone who pursues God, and he shows us what he, sorry, what he points to, gives us hope that we can do that too. Gives us hope that this is not just for good people or super saints, but that you and I, regular people who struggle, regular people who struggle among struggling people, that we also can seek God, and that this is actually something that will move us toward the Lord. Now, last week we saw that when you set your heart to seek God, one of the first things that you should see in your life is repentance. That as you move closer to the Lord, he shows you more and more things that you've been relying on instead of relying on God. Things that have kept you away from God. Things that you would, thought would give you more life, that you thought would give you a better life than God would. But over time, as you see more of what God offers, then those other things that you were trusting in, they, they, they start to lose their shine. They, they start to pale in comparison. And so you repent. You turn away from them. And that just becomes a regular pattern then throughout your life, pattern of repentance. That's what we saw last week. This week we're going to see that seeking God leads to valuing the personal connection that he wants to have with you. We learned this week that repentance is important, but it's not the highest goal, but that it actually leads us to something else. It leads to a restored relationship with God. 
And that's because when you're really seeking God, you're not seeking him for what you can get out of him. You're seeking him for himself. He is the highest goal because knowing him, that, that's what you're really interested in. So to help us see that from today's passage, we're going to focus on two things. First, we're going to see that the impact of idolatry on our relationship with God is that it leads to neglecting God. That idolatry inevitably leads to neglecting God. And second, that repentance doesn't end with just getting rid of idols, but it leads to a renewing of your relationship with God. So just two things for today. Idolatry leads to neglecting God. Repentance leads to renewal. Let's dive in. I want you to remember the timeline here. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. King over a kingdom that was just steeped in idolatry. But then at 16 years old, there's a change in his life. There's a change where he starts doing something that he had not been doing before. He starts taking his faith seriously as a teenager. Sets his heart. We saw this last week in verse 3. Sets his heart to seek the God of his father David. That's good to hear. That's what you want your king to do. But now in verse 8 today, we hear of something new. Something that goes even deeper. It's now the 18th year of his reign. You do the math, you realize he's now 26 years old. He's still a very young man. And he's still seeking God, but there is a new change. Because you realize he's no longer seeking the God of his father, David. That's what he set his heart to do at 16. But now instead, verse 8, he sends these really important officials to repair the house of the Lord, his God. Not the Lord David's God. It's a new dimension to his relationship with God. God is no longer just connected to his ancestor. He's not the God of David. God is not someone who did some things way back in the past for other people. But now there is a personal element. There's a relational element. This is the Lord, his God. This is now the God of Josiah. Josiah is no longer pursuing somebody that he's heard of. He's now relating to somebody that he knows. And that's a change that has to take place for every single one of us. Young people, you're with us this morning. Let me talk to you for just a moment. You can grow up in a home where mom and dad teach you about the Lord. Or you can come to church and have friends who will tell you about their relationship with God. Or you can hear from somebody else at church, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher. That's all good. We have to have other people teach us about who the Lord is. None of us come to God by ourselves. But at some point, young people, if you are seeking God, there has to be this same shift from knowing about the God of your parents or your friends or your pastors to knowing this God personally for yourself. It's a change so that you would not talk about or think about the God of my family, the God of my friends, but you would talk and think about the Lord, my God. It's important for all of us. It's especially important, however, if you grew up in a Christian family or if you just grew up in a family that took you to church. It's very easy to know things about God. It's easy to learn a lot of information about him, but never really know him personally. 
I have a friend who told me once that growing up in a Christian family, he somehow got the idea that knowing God was like having a database. You know what a database is? It's full of information. He thought that knowing God was like having a database full of information about God, and that the more serious you were about God, the bigger your database was, the more information you tried to collect. My friend said, nobody ever told me that. It's just kind of how I thought I should treat a relationship with God. That being a Christian meant stuffing more information into my head. And it wasn't until years later that he realized that knowing things about someone is not the same as actually knowing them. That studying what God says is not the same as having a friendship with him. You all know that. When you study history at school, you learn about famous people in the past. But it doesn't matter how much you learn about them, it's not the same as having a friendship with them or them having a friendship with you. You can't talk to them, they can't talk to you, you can't trust them, they can't help you. You know about them, but they don't know, but you don't know them and they don't know you. And so your knowledge isn't personal, it doesn't lead to relationship. And now speaking to all of us a little bit more, for some of us, that's kind of where we are with God. We know things about him, but it doesn't feel like we know him personally, not like we know our friends. Now again, you look at the life of Josiah, you have no idea where this when this change came for him. It's somewhere between the ages of 16 and 26, and something's different. This is now the Lord his God, not just the God of his father, David. That change has to come for each one of us, even if God has blessed us with a family that taught us about him. And so that means young people, older people, you need to ask yourself, have I had that shift yet? That shift where I know this is my God, not just the God of my parents, the God of my teachers. A shift where I have started to know him personally not just know things about him. And parents, let me talk to you for a moment. What's this mean for you? Well, obviously it means that you need to have this shift for yourself, but it also means you need to talk about this shift with your kids. You need to be able to say to them, yes, I know that the Lord is my God. Maybe some of you can point to a rough time frame when that change happened for you. But your kids need to hear that from you. They need to know that God is personal to you. It also means, however, that you need to help your kids understand that that change that you have experienced, that change has to then happen for them. You can't nag them into it. You do not want this to be the conversation around the dinner table every day. Probably not every week. But you need to help your kids realize that at some point they have to own the faith for themselves so that the Lord becomes their God. And let me take some burden off if you're feeling burdened. You're not in charge of when that happens. For Josiah, who knows? It's somewhere in that 10-year span of his life. It's not something that you can make happen. That's not your responsibility. What you can do is you can help your kids understand that there is more to knowing God than knowing facts and figures and information. And you can have those conversations with them. 
So Josiah has a personal relationship with God, and one of the ways then that he expresses it is he sets out to repair the house of the Lord his God, and this house really needs it. Apparently there was money that was set aside for things like this, but it had not been used. And so Josiah appoints several people to make this happen. These people, verse 9, came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God. Now, what is it that they did with the money? Verse 10, they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. Get a little bit more detail as to what they actually did with the money. Verse 11, they gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. So they used this money to pay the workmen and to purchase materials. What kind of materials? Well, they purchased quarried stone. You think, okay, what does that mean? If you go over to 1 Kings chapter 15, you'll learn there that King Solomon built the first temple and he commanded people to quarry large stones in order to build this, the temple. You think large. How large is large? We really don't know. That temple was destroyed. It was later rebuilt. But we do know something about the temple that Herod built several centuries later. And the smallest stones in Herod's temple weigh between two and five tons. Those are the little stones. You have to guess at the weight of the large ones because you can't move them. There are hundreds of tons. So when we hear that Josiah's workmen are purchasing quarried stone, you can't think about somebody with a wheelbarrow and, and little brick-sized blocks of stone. We're talking about really large slabs of, of rock here. They're purchasing serious building materials. What's that tell you? If you need a quarried stone to fix something, then those buildings had developed some serious structural problems. It's underlined by the fact that they also purchased timber for binders and beams. That's joists and beams. The joists and beams of these buildings needed to be replaced. Some of the supporting walls made of stone needed to be repaired. We're not talking here about remodeling. We're not talking about bringing something up to date, doing some cosmetic work. We're talking about serious structural renovation. We're talking about doing stuff so that the buildings don't fall down. Now, the condition of these buildings is dangerous, but it would also have been incredibly noticeable. You should have been able to see, even a casual observer would have noticed these kind of things. You think, how did this happen? How did this go unaddressed for all this time? It's because, verse 11, the kings of Judah had let the buildings go to ruin. It tells you there, here's the reason. The kings neglected God and the things of God. They did not see him as being as relevant to life as they saw something else. And so they let the buildings associated with him go to ruin. Something else snuck in. Something else stole their attention and drew their heart away from God so they didn't care about him, didn't care about the things that he cared about. As you read through the book of Kings, I hope you're doing that. Sally and I continue to do that. I hope you're doing that. As you read through the book of Kings, you get some of the descriptions of what that looks like. 
And so, for instance, at some point you'll come to 2 Kings chapter 16, and you'll learn there about a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was in the middle of a war. Another king was coming to fight against him. And instead of running to the Lord, trusting that God would rescue his people just like he had always done, Ahaz didn't do that. Ahaz ran to another country, very powerful country, Assyria, and he turned Israel into a vassal state, slave state underneath Assyria. And then he went to Damascus. He had to go meet his new political overlord. And while he's there in Damascus, he sees an altar. And this altar does not look like the one that's back home in God's temple. This one is bigger. It's more impressive. Ahaz likes it better. And he basically says, man, I got to get me one of these. So he sketches out a drawing of it, sends the plans back home, and he orders the priests to build one like this, and then to take God's altar, put it to the side, and put this new one, his altar, there so that he could offer sacrifices on it instead. I think, why? <laughs> Was there something wrong with God's altar? Was it not working like it used to, not doing the job that God made it to do? And you realize, no, the altar was fine. It was exactly what God said you needed in order to approach him. And it had to be that way. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, it's very important, that everything in God's temple was exactly how God designed it to be. It was very important because those things were shadows and copies of things that were more substantial, things in heaven. Things that had a purpose and a function to bring God's people to him. And so the earthly copies had to have a certain look and a certain function. Ahaz, however, doesn't value that. He thought he could improve on this altar. That he could make, it, make his own way to get to God. God's altar didn't seem impressive to his mind. And so he found a new one and pushed what God had offered to the side. Now, there's a word for that. Some of you may know this word, some may not. It's called syncretism. Syncretism. What's syncretism? Syncretism is when you take different religions or philosophies and you add them together because you think that the combination of them will give you a better outcome. It's, it's wiser, it's more insightful than if you just had the faith alone. And the thinking here is that these other thoughts, these ideas, these other ways of doing things, of understanding of life, of building altars, will give you a new perspective on life that will fill in something that was missing before. Something that God just, you know, he hadn't talked about, but something that you really need if you're going to make sense out of life. In some sense, that, 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 that's appealing, right? It's appealing to me. We all want to understand as much of life as possible. We recognize that everybody has a different perspective. So why not bring together as many of these things as you can? Besides, we think if you syncretize, nobody uses that word, but if you syncretize, if you add the beliefs from the larger world, that will do what? It'll help you fit in better with the people around you. It'll show that you're willing to listen to people, that you're not dogmatic, that you can learn and grow from them. What, what, what could be wrong with that? What's wrong is it's dangerous because it makes an assumption. It assumes something that never gets said out loud. 
but that people believe. And what it assumes is that what God offers his people is not enough. It's not enough to really understand what's going on in my life, in your life, in the larger world, and that what you and I need is to add things to what God has said if we're going to live well in this world. That's the assumption. Syncretism assumes there are things that God did not mention before. The world was not as developed as it is now, so when he gave us a scripture, he just didn't talk about some things. But you and I run into stuff every day that we need to have this new thing, this new way of thinking, this new approach about life, this new thing to rely on, or we're just going to miss something really important about life. And the way syncretism starts is that you would never say that God's way of life is bad. You would never start by saying that the altar that he designed is bad. It's just what? It's just not keeping up with the times. You'd never say God's way are bad. Instead, you would say that they're good. They're, they're good what? Over here in this smaller segment of life. They deal with religious things. They deal with heaven. They deal with getting saved. But they don't have a whole lot to say to the rest of life. It doesn't really help you understand identity or relationships or economics or politics. And so the argument goes, if you want to live well, you have to rely on other things. You have to bring in these insights from people whose starting assumption is that we don't need God to tell us how to live. Starting assumption that we can understand people, we understand society just fine without taking him into account. Starting assumption, we are perfectly capable of designing our own altars. We don't need to him to tell us how to do that. Syncretism says you have to add in these other ways of thinking, these other ways of living that we've discovered for ourselves if we're going to have a chance of living well. And so you add this new thing in. But what does it do to your faith? Here's how it leads to the temple being ruined. Because when you add this new thing in, it captures your attention more than what God says. It takes center stage. It, it seems more interesting, more helpful, definitely newer, it's more exciting, and slowly pushes God to the periphery until it replaces what God said, just like Ahaz's new altar replaced the old one. And so you start to neglect the things of God, and the things of God then go to ruin. It's not that you set out to get rid of God entirely, but over time he gets less attention. What he says seems to speak to less and less of life. It seems more outdated, starts feeling irrelevant, especially to the kind of things that people are interested in. And so God himself becomes less relevant to the concerns that people have, less necessary in order to live well, because now you have these other things that you can rely on. See, that's why syncretism gets so much airspace in Scripture. It's in both Old Testament and New Testament. It gets so much airtime because it's so dangerous. It's why God tells you in the Old Testament, you must not have any other gods before me, because they'll take all of your attention away. It's why the Old Testament constantly calls out the people for adopting the idols of the nations around them. It's why the New Testament continues warning God's people. It warns the Corinthians not to join in at idol feasts. 
It warns the Colossians, do not buy into the larger Greco-Roman world of philosophy. It warns the churches in Revelation not to adopt the patterns and the lifestyles of the world around you. We get these warnings from Old Testament and New Testament because it's so easy and so subtle to think that God has not said enough about life, to try to reduce some of the tension between us and our society. It's tempting, but the result is that you get drawn away by this new shiny thing. This thing that makes people feel like God is irrelevant and that the ways that he's called us to live have nothing to do with life. And here's where humility says, we just have to understand we're all susceptible to this. We're susceptible to the pull of idolatry just like the people of God always have been. We're susceptible without knowing that that's what we're doing. So how can you tell if this is you? Let me give you a litmus test. Ask yourself, have I done what the kings did? Have I neglected God and the things of God? Have I let the things of God go to ruin in my own life because something else is much more exciting to me? Do the ways of God excite me more than I'm excited by anything else? Or is there something else Something else that promises to give me more life, to give me more excitement, to give me more of what I want out of life. Is there something that promises to fix my problems better than God does? Something that offers more blessings than God does? Something that I think will make better sense out of the world than God does? If there is, then this passage is speaking to you speaking to me. It's giving us a visible picture of what happens to our faith when that's the case. It shows you that your faith goes to ruin and that the ruin is deep and needs to be radically repaired and restored. And it sets you up for the good news of this passage. And the good news is that your faith can be repaired and restored. Because while idolatry leads to neglecting your faith, point two, repentance, leads to restoration. Now to understand why there's so much emphasis on the temple, on fixing the temple, restoring the temple, let's think together why the temple is so important that it needs to be restored. Maybe that'll help us then understand what restoration means for us in our own lives when we don't have a temple anymore. In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God told his people that he would meet with them personally. It was a physical space where they knew that they could find him. A place where they could find his presence in a special kind of way because he would cause his presence to dwell there in the temple. The temple is what? It's, it's actually his house. It's his palace. And he would cause his presence to stay in a special room in that house. We call it the Holy of Holies. It was behind a curtain. The curtain was there to keep you from just walking in on God and walking in on his holiness. Holiness is always dangerous for unholy people. But God was there in the Holy of Holies. And in that room, there's not a whole lot of furniture, but there was an ark. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was basically a box. It was a golden box that held the Ten Commandments. That was the law that God had given to his people in order to tell them, here's how to live with me. 
You remember your Old Testament history. God wanted a friendship with his people. He pursued them. He saved them from a miserable life in slavery. Essentially, he married them. He had loved them. He had cared for them. And he gave them commandments, not so that they could prove themselves to him, but so they could now figure out what it meant to love him, so that they could know how to love him back. That's why he wanted to have a house that was in and among them so that he and they could live together. The temple tells you God wants to be their God, friends with them, so that they could know him. The problem, however, is when you just read quickly through the Ten Commandments and you realize that nobody ever loved him. Nobody ever returned his love in the same kind of way. They never matched his love with their love. There was never a single person, you just go through the Ten Commandments, never a single person who never told a lie. Not a single person who always told the entire truth like God always tells the whole truth to us. Not a single person who, who had always been faithful to him like he's always faithful to us. No one who hadn't stolen anything or wanted to steal something that wasn't theirs like God has never taken anything from us that doesn't belong to him. God loved them. He told them what it meant to love him, and no one did. And the evidence of that was sitting there in the Ark of the Covenant. So here's God longing to be with his people who can never be with him if it's left up to us, if it's left up to us being good with him. No one could ever be there with him unless there's a way to make up for all of the things that we have broken that you can see written in the covenant. And here's that place where God's grace is just that much bigger. His love goes even further because the box has more than just commandments in it. The box also has a lid. It's a golden lid that covers it. And the lid has a special name. The lid is called the mercy seat. And the high priest was supposed to come in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Blood that would do what? It would cover all the broken commandments all the broken laws that were in the box, it would allow people then to have a relationship with this God so that they wouldn't have to die for having not loved God back. It was there in Exodus 30 that God told Moses, you are to place the altar, the altar that God designed, not someone else. You are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the Ark of the Testimony. Place the altar in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, that's the commandments, where I will meet with you. God made his presence dwell over the mercy seat, the mercy seat that covered the broken law so that he could meet with his people who had broken the law. It was where he made it possible for you to meet with him, a place where you did not die for not loving him because he's willing to take a substitute for you. Brothers and sisters, this is why syncretism is so horrible. It's because it pretends that what God did wasn't necessary. It pretends there are other ways, maybe better ways, to get to God. That's just not true. The temple was never our idea. It was always God's idea, not anyone else's. That's why it's so important to repair it, because it's the place where you had relationship with God. It's the place where, you, where God knew we could never get to him on our own. Our own designs, our own thoughts just are not good enough, and yet God wants us anyway. 
And so God himself planned out a way for us to get close to him and not be destroyed. A place where a relationship with him could actually take place. And here's one of those places where I wonder if the Old Testament would be helpful sometimes to us because it was so physical, right? You did what? You had to walk to the temple. When you walked to the temple, you knew you were going to visit someone. You weren't going to just do religious activities. You were going to someone's house. You were going to God's house. You were going there to meet with him. Why were you going to meet with him? Because you had an invitation from him to meet with you. That's why it's such a horrible thing that the temple and all the buildings are falling down. People are not valuing the relationship that God has offered to them. You didn't go because you had a great new idea for a new altar, better, different way of getting to God. You went because God wanted you there. And God did something that turned his desire into reality. He made a way for you to be there. A way that points forward to Jesus. You realize that Jesus is the high priest. He's the one who entered into the Holy of Holies, the one in heaven, into the very throne room of God to do what? To intercede for you. To make atonement for the many times that you and I have broken God's commands. And to do that, Jesus brought his own blood. Because as Hebrews 10 tells us, the blood of animal sacrifices, bulls, goats, could never take away sins. Those Old Testament sacrifices were a placeholder, essentially a promise from God that he was going to do something in the future that those sacrifices could not do. He was going to get rid of sin so that it just was no longer an issue. Jesus came and offered himself once, not like the Old Testament priests who offered over and over. Jesus offered on the cross once and completely wiped out everything that you and I have ever done so that we could come into God's presence and not be destroyed. That's why you repent of having trusted or relied on anything else, because nothing else can do that. That's why you joyfully repent, because what you're actually doing then is moving toward God and actually having more of Him, more of a personal relationship. And that's the litmus test here that tells you whether you have repented or not, whether you are repenting. You ask yourself, Am I growing in my desire for God? All of life is repentance. We talked about that last week. All of life is a constant renewal of love and desire for God. There's a process of repentance and there's a process of renewal. There's a coming to God once and there's a growth, growing in relationship with God throughout your life. And so you learn to ask process questions. Do I want God more than I used to? Do I want to meet with him more than I used to? Am I relying on him in ways that I didn't used to? That's the evidence that you really are seeking him. It's that you want more and more and more of him. It's the evidence that helps you understand how much God is really happy to keep giving you more and more of him, a greater and greater heart for him. And God does that because what he's always wanted is to be your God. Lord Jesus, you've been so gracious to us. You've provided for us not animal blood that could not actually help us, 
but you have covered all of our sins, all of, our, all of the broken law with your own blood. Lord, we know those of us who have come to you, trusted you, we know that there is nothing that we can do that's ever going to lose your love for us, never going to make it any less. Lord, I pray for us now as a community. Lord, that we would see you a little bit more and that we have a greater desire, desire to run away from anything else that we've ever trusted to make life work and a greater hunger and thirst for you.